The rise of anti-Semitism is a deeply concerning trend that has continued to surge in recent years. Rooted in prejudice against the Jewish people, it can manifest in many different ways, from verbal attacks and harassment to physical violence and even genocide. Anti-Semitism is a common phenomenon on campuses around the world. It is essential to recognize that the rise of anti-Semitism is often fueled by misinformation and propaganda that seeks to scapegoat and demonize Jewish people. As such, combating this form of prejudice requires a concerted effort to promote education. In colleges and universities in the United States and many other countries, Jewish students face vicious attacks and alienation because of their Jewish and Zionist identities. I'm Dr. Afat Sofa, and today in Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress Israel, we'll talk about anti-Semitism in institutions of higher education. Our guests are Yana Naftalieva, president of the World Union of Jewish Students, We'll discuss how Jewish students combat this pernicious phenomenon and Professor Gerald Steinberg, founder and president of NGO Monitor, who addresses the roots and causes of the so-called new anti-Semitism, how it's connected to anti-Zionism and what must be done to quash it. Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Connecting Israel to Jewish communities around the world. Yana Naftalieva is president of the World Union of Jewish Student, WUJAS, a democratic organization representing over 800,000 college and university students across the globe. Yana is serving as vice president of the WJC Executive Committee and as a member of the WJC NextGen Advisory Committee. She's committed to empowering the next generation of Jewish leaders and fostering Jewish student activism. Yana does this by advocating for the voices of the next generation of Jewish leaders to be heard by major institutions throughout the world. Most recently, Yana was elected president of the World Union of Jewish Students. During her term, she continues to focus on combating anti-Semitism across the world and supporting Jewish student unions who are at the coalface of this battle. Yana, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. Let's begin. Tell us about yourself. How did you become involved in combating anti-Semitism at universities? So I have been a Jewish student abroad. I was born and raised in Moscow and attended university there. At the same time, I was the vice president of the World Union of Jewish Students and the vice president of the European Union of Jewish Students. So I'm really aware of the problem on campuses around the globe. And anti-Semitism today has different forms and comes in very different types. For example, anti-Zionism is a real problem for a lot of campuses around the world, but mostly in the Western world. This is something I experienced myself in Moscow. A lot of students couldn't bear the Israeli flags uh, on different international events and so on. Uh, but this is not the only form of anti-Semitism that students are facing today. There is also old far-right anti-Semitism where Jews are just hated for the way they look, for the way they are, and for the simple fact that they exist. Unfortunately, there are a lot of cases across the globe where not only students, uh, but also the professors are showing this type of anti-Semitic behavior. Is it across Europe, Jana? It depends on the region you're coming from. Uh, when we talk about uh, Eastern Europe, 
I would say that anti-Semitic people are less worried about Israel, but they're worried about Jews in general. And in the West, Western Europe, they're more focused on Israel. And when we talk about the globe, we know that in the US, for example, anti-Semites are both far right and far left. So there are a lot of regions in the world that are suffering from both types of anti-Semitism. This is fascinating. Um, can you please give us examples of both types of anti-Semitism? When we talk about far-right anti-Semitism, um, the first thing that comes to my mind is when I was serving as the president of the Jewish club in my university in Moscow, and we would get tons of messages on social media saying that we are greedy Jews trying to conquer the university and then conquer the world and conquer Russia and everything. Uh, that was uh, really horrible. Um, another example, I believe in the University of Denver, uh, recently uh, the mezuzahs were turned down from the doors of Jewish students on campus. And when we talk about anti-Zionism, there is unfortunately also plenty of examples. For example, um, University of Berkeley recently was trying to create Jewish free zones, which meant that any person that is affiliated with Israel Uh, loves Israel and supports Israel is not allowed to a certain uh, student spaces. Luckily and very fortunately, this initiative didn't pass. But the fact that some people on campus uh, are trying to create something like this is horrifying. It is indeed horrifying. How often does an average Jewish student feel attacked for their Judaism and support of Israel? I think it really depends where. Uh, from the reports I usually read, I know that in America it is a real problem. Uh, in South Africa, it seems to be a huge problem. Like recently, we at the World Union of Jewish Students were helping the South African Union of Jewish Students to fight Apartheid Week. But in general, in Russia, for example, I don't think that a Jewish student will feel attacked unless he brings the Israeli flag or something like this to campus. And can you... Talk us through the phenomenon of Apartheid Week. Israel Apartheid Week happens every year in over 250 cities around the globe. And this year it's happening for the 18th uh, year in a row in South Africa, where it has been supported by 85 organizations, trade unions and political parties. Um, during the Israel Apartheid Week in South Africa, the BDS movement organizes a series of events protests, lectures and workshops with the aim of promoting a so-called nonviolent boycott toward Israel. And a lot of a lot of Jewish students uh, on campuses in South Africa are experiencing it and uh, traumatized by it. But they are real fighters. Um, this year, they were really trying hard to prevent BDS movement from holding lectures uh, in the universities. Unfortunately, Every year, it's harder and harder to fight um, Apartheid Week and to prevent them from coming. Um, but uh, the fight is on and we at just help the South African Union as much as we can. This is not only the South Africa who is experiencing Apartheid Week. We know that a lot of universities in Europe also experience it. For example, Leiden University in the Netherlands also was having a fight uh, with the university in order to prevent BDS speaker from talking to the students. It really sounds like all students have their work cut out for them. Um, in general, has it always been like that? Or did the anti-Semitism grow over time? Well, we know that this problem has always been around. 
unfortunately. Uh, we know that, for example, in the Soviet Union, if you were Jewish, you were not allowed to go to the certain universities. They had the rule, like 7% of the Jewish students could go, but not the rest. We know that the same thing happened elsewhere, where the biggest and the most famous universities were founded. Jewish students were not allowed in the beginning to attend universities, then later to attend certain student spaces. This is as old as our world. Of course, now the situation has changed and Jewish students can get accepted anywhere they want. But still, anti-Semitism is there, just in a different shape and a different form. Now it's hidden. The world in general is going in a more pluralistic direction, more accepting direction. Being bluntly anti-Semitic now is unacceptable. You can't say the same things people were saying 100 years ago and 50 years ago. But still, there are people who hate Jews and they have to hide it and find new ways to perform their hate. And anti-Zionism is an excellent way to do so. And Jana, have you personally experienced anti-Semitism on your own campus? Yes, unfortunately, I did. Um, every year in my university in Moscow, we would have like an international fair. Every national union will bring uh, the flag of the country, uh, the dish, the food, um, you know, to just represent the culture. And uh, our Jewish club was doing the same thing. And unfortunately, we would hear things from international students studying in Moscow, things like, oh, Israel is not a real country. You guys don't exist. I didn't hear a lot of things like this from the Russian students, but from international students a lot. I was personally attacked a few times on uh, my social media. I would get horrible messages on my Instagram. And this time from Russians saying that uh, Jews are greedy and we don't deserve to live. Absolutely shocking. Jana, I want to talk about the actions and the possible solutions to this scourge. What actions are being taken with respect to the problem of anti-Semitism on campuses? Well, first of all, every university Jewish students union is connected to the global Jewish student union, and there is always a communication between them. So whenever an act of anti-Semitism is performed on campus, we know, and when they need our help, we can write an open letter to the dean of the university and try to draw as much attention as possible to this act and problem. Uh, we also help uh, national student unions to promote IRO definition of anti-Semitism on their campuses, in their universities. And I, in general, think that if we'll show anti-Semites that they are not welcome and that we're not going to be silent, but going to fight them, they will stop doing it and will think twice before doing any anti-Semitic action. We have to show this kind of solidarity. Jana, you also cooperate with the World Jewish Congress. Yes, we do. So the WJC has this amazing department called uh, WJC Next Gen, and we're working with them on several projects. One of them is called WJC Next Gen Incubator, which means that every Jewish student across the globe can apply for this program and get the funding for any project he wants. The project, of course, has to be connected with uh, Judaism and Jewish people. It can be anything you want, but with the Jewish aspects. But the most important thing that uh, Next Gen Incubator doesn't just hand out the money. It helps Jewish students to build a foundation for their ideas by providing resources, support and expertise. There is also a Louder Fellowship, which is an amazing opportunity for Jewish students to be a part of Diplomatic Summit to see how the World Jewish Congress works. 
and to meet a lot of different Jewish organizations. We at Wujis help to spread the word about this fellowship as well. Another very important thing is that World Union of Jewish Students, as an organization, is a part of the executive committee of the World Jewish Congress, which means that I, as a president, get a seat at the committee and have the right to vote on behalf of all young Jewish students. And this is really where the World Jewish Congress walks the walk as well as talks the talk in really creating a seat at the table for the next generation. What do you think will happen in 10 years' time regarding this problem? Well, as much as I want to say anti-Semitism will be gone in 10 years, I don't think it will, and we all know it won't. But once again, I think the world in general is taking major steps forward, um, governments trying to prevent anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism is not acceptable anymore. Organizations like Wujis and like WGC are doing everything in their capacity to stop this problem. And of course, the Jewish students themselves are the biggest heroes. The way they fight and spread awareness is just amazing. With a young generation like this, I'm sure that the Jewish students will be fine. Well, we'll end on this optimistic note. Thank you very much, Jana Naftalieva, President of the World Union of Jewish Students. Thank you very much, Efrat, for inviting me and giving an opportunity to spread awareness about situation at student campuses. World Union of Jewish Students loves working with you at WGC. You're listening to Jewish World by the World Jewish Congress, Israel. Our next guest is Professor Gerald Steinberg. He's the founder and president of NGO Monitor and Professor Emeritus at Barilan University. His research focuses on Middle East diplomacy and security, the politics of human rights and non-governmental organizations, and shows how human rights and Palestinian organizations propel anti-Zionist policy, which often merges into anti-Semitic views. Professor Steinberg is a frequent contributor to the Israel Journal of Foreign Affairs, and his op-eds have been published in the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, Haaretz, the Jerusalem Post, and other publications. Professor Gerald Steinberg, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much. It's an honor and pleasure for me to be here. Professor Steinberg, we heard from Jana Naftalieva, president of the World Union of Jewish Students, how widespread anti-Semitism is on campuses. We know that there are different types of anti-Israel activities in various universities, especially in the U.S. Has it always been like that? Well, certainly in the last 20 years, I have observed we've seen a ramping up of the attacks First of all, against Israel, sometimes the term demonization is used, sometimes delegitimization, but uh, it also gets combined with attacks against Jewish students, against Jewish organizations, whether it's Hillel or other groups that are combined Jewish life with uh, support for Israel or even Israel information. It's not just support. It can be a a lecturer or a a film about various aspects of Israeli society, which are not political, but that immediately brings out a a, uh, counter reaction protests. Sometimes they can be violent. They can be shouting down, preventing speakers from being able to appear, preventing uh, the, the filming of or the showing of films, all of that. And that's been ramping up. I think we can see a pretty steady growth of that uh, over the last 20 years, I trace it to the uh, 
big explosion of the Durban conference uh, that took place. The UN sponsored a, a major conference, which was the beginning of BDS in September of 2001. There are other factors that are involved. But again, I think the important point here is that it is continuing to grow and it's been very difficult. We really have not found neither the administration of the university campuses, the faculty and others acting responsibly in preventing this and, and stopping this. And also for, in terms of the, the Jewish community, it's been very difficult to find ways of responding to this effectively. It is extraordinary. And it's something that I've witnessed here in the UK. We, we've had, for example, the Israeli ambassador being basically chased out of a university here in London and her security detail had to whisk her out. What are the special properties of campuses that make this new anti-Semitism flourish? Universities are a, uh, an attractive venue, platform, for what we call the new anti-Semitism. Uh, the idea that it's, first of all, because of the, the liberal progressive environment, and then you add to that what's called intersectionality, it's very easily penetrated. The line between what is academic content, what is taught in classrooms, what is done in research, and what takes place at the university, but outside that framework, is it's a very blurry, very thin line. And what I've seen is that it provides an opportunity, particularly for powerful non-governmental organizations that claim to promote human rights. Groups like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, Amnesty based in, in London, Human Rights Watch based in the United States. These are organizations with at least $100 million, three or 400 million uh, euros in the case of Amnesty, where they are obsessed by Israel. And they've done this and for, for close to 20 years. And they run these programs. And then there are a whole group of other relatively uh, smaller, but still quite effective non-governmental organizations. Some of them are clearly identified with the Palestinian cause, but many of them have this human rights aura or agenda, or they talk about peace and promoting democracy, promoting various other types of, of agendas that fit into that spectrum, where the university is a natural environment for them to grow, where people don't really ask questions about uh, who's supporting them, where's the money coming for this, is it even accurate? But they are really um, taken, I'd say, captured by the slogans, by the images, the suffering of the Palestinians, the narrative has been sold very effectively at the universities and at the age where students can very much identify and, and say, well, we should be doing something about this, the terrible Israelis and what they're doing to the Palestinians, the suffering of the Palestinians, all of that together makes the universities a very fertile ground for this type of uh, de demonization or delegitimization process. And how do they actually enter the universities, these organizations? How, how do they work? First of all, universities are basically without real boundaries. But they also have, in law school programs, international law in particular, they have created a series of what are called sometimes clinics, Sometimes they're called just the programs that are, they're not, they're quasi-academic, or I would even say they're pseudo-academic. I mean, we have the recent case of uh, Ken Roth, who for 20 years has been leading the campaign to demonize Israel through Human Rights Watch, finally retired from that organization and got himself a position after a major battle at Harvard University. And now he's also got a position apparently at Princeton University. Uh, many of the people at Amnesty, at Human Rights Watch, at these organizations are invited to give talks. And they also 
provide means, financial means of supporting these programs. Again, they're pseudo-academic. They do not, the, the heads of the programs tend to be activists and not people with real academic credentials at each of these centers or um, clinics, international law clinics, and they support the downtrodden, again, the, the, the role of intersectionality where you get people who know very little about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, almost nothing about the history, but they identify with the suffering of the Palestinians, with other groups, uh, blacks in, in Africa, all sorts of other um, frameworks, the, the Dalits in, in India. These all come together in this kind of intersectionality approach. But the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and particularly the, the Palestinian cause, gets a far more attention uh, for, for all the reasons that, that we know and, and includes a form of anti-Semitism. So the, uh, these organizations are able to enter the framework of the university through these types of, of quasi-academic frameworks. Then they get uh, added to the uh, syllabi of various university courses. Again, I, I find the law schools to be the most porous in this sense, but it goes sometimes also through ethnic studies programs, uh, courses that are on Palestinians or on Israel, which are taught from the perspective of Israel, the 100% aggressor, guilty of colonialism, all those terms and languages then get adopted into the new speak of, of academic activities in the 21st century. Just as a follow-up question to something that you mentioned about following the money trail for the financing of these NGOs that um, enter the universities and bring in this new anti-Semitism, have you been able to trace the sources of the um, funds coming in for these programs? Some of the money is transparent. Again, we're talking about very large budgets. Uh, case of We're talking about our estimate on Geomonitor, the organization that I founded after I began to, to see this and begin to understand that it needs research. This is 20, over the last 20 years. We're talking about budgets of hundreds of millions of euros or dollars or pounds, whichever currency you want. When you get to those numbers, it's a very large amount. Amnesty International alone has over 300 million euros a year as an annual budget and a significant a disproportionate part of that goes to their anti-israel activities uh, now where does the money come from well in some cases it's visible and many of these organizations thank many of their donors they hold events fundraising events in the case of amnesty uh, on some years there's a significant amount coming from various governments largely in europe but not only sometimes also in north america uh, Human Rights Watch gets very little money from governments, but it has a very effective fundraising machine. And some of the multi-billionaires that support liberal causes, George Soros comes to mind as one of the main supporters of Human Rights Watch. I wouldn't be surprised if he also funds Amnesty. Amnesty is less transparent about its funding. So you have, in some cases, government money, which generally is transparent, but nobody really pays much attention. We also have the funding from multi-millionaires, multi-billionaires, and including now high-tech people, others that have given to these organizations for ideological, political reasons. And then these organizations also run various fundraising activities. They have, in many cases, hundreds of donors that traditionally come to dinners and provide their, their funding and also get the, the attention that uh, as being uh, Part of a part of the organizational framework and supporters, they get thanked in the uh, publicity. So together, this is a significant amount of money. It's these are very 
well-oiled fundraising machines. Uh, I will also add that we don't know all the details. And a couple of years ago, it turns out that Human Rights Watch, which had gone to Saudi Arabia back in 2009 and said we never got raised funds from there. It was a, uh, some sort of a educational program in Saudi Arabia. And it turns out that we, through a leak, an internal leak, that a wealthy Saudi uh, businessman, someone who had been accused of corruption, provided over 400 million, 400,000, I'm going to say that sentence again. It turned out that a wealthy Saudi businessman who had been involved in various uh, corrupt activities, provided Human Rights Watch with close to half a million dollars, which was hidden from any kind of publicity or public view. And it was leaked by a, an employee at, at uh, Human Rights Watch. So there's probably money, the significant amounts of money that we also don't know about in this framework. Thank you so much, Gerald. We're talking about anti-Israel activities. Are they always tied with anti-Semitism? Depends on how you define anti-Israel. If it becomes obsessive, as in the case of Human Rights Watch and Amnesty, both organizations put out these uh, very massive reports on the same, almost the same theme, the theme of Israel as an apartheid state you know, over the last couple of years. And that's clearly anti-Semitic. That's saying things and doing things with respect to Israel that are not even considered with respect to dozens of other countries with different uh, political conflicts and situations. Defining Israel, labeling Israel as an apartheid state, as a serial war crimes committer, as a serial violator of international law, worse than any other country in the world, that already crosses the line. The International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance has a working definition of anti-Semitism, which is widely accepted at many universities and in many other institutions. There are over 30 countries that have signed on to this definition, and they have a list of three or four um, anti-Semitic aspects of not just criticism of Israel, but of condemning and delegitimizing Israel. S independent, separate, unique criteria not applied to any other country or programs like or campaigns like BDS. They don't say BDS, but they say when Israel is singled out, double standards are applied or unique standards are applied to Israel, that's a form of anti-Semitism. When Israel and the actions of the Israeli military in defending itself against terrorism are compared to Nazi Germany, that is a form of anti-Semitism. So, and when denying the right of the Jewish people to self-determination is a form of anti-Semitism. I think those criteria are very clear. They are widely accepted. And I think that is the difference. Criticizing Israel, no problem. And it's like any other country, and it happens in Israel all the time, as we all see. But crossing the line into one of those categories, that already becomes anti-Semitism, or what's now called the new anti-Semitism, the terms that were used by the late Robert Ristrich and Bernard Lewis over 20 years ago, and now we're seeing it in, in not just as phenomenon that we need to worry about, but very much well-established through these uh, human rights institutions. I couldn't agree more with you that the uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, IRA definition, of anti-Semitism really is the gold standard. And it's uh, something that we at the WJC work tirelessly towards um, having different organizations throughout the globe adopt it for various um, policy implementation as well. So um, it's, it's super interesting to hear you mention that also. 
Shifting to something else that you mentioned also, how does the Israeli government or the actions of any given Israeli government affect this phenomenon? And how has this particular Israeli government and its policies affected, in your eyes, anti-Semitism in general? Now I'm going to sound like a typical professor and say, on the one hand, on the other (laughs) hand. So on the one hand, I've been tracking, researching, writing about, along with colleagues, about this form of anti-Semitism, the anti-Zionist, anti-Israel form of and the new anti-Semitism for 20 years, since really at least 2000, 2001. We've had many different governments, wide spectrum, didn't make any difference. The attacks against Israel, the demonization, the use of the language like apartheid, like war crimes, has been pretty much continuous throughout that period. And that's on the one hand. On the other hand, whenever there is a military clash, uh, any of the wars in Gaza over the years, every time there are images on, uh, you see, I was going to say television, but much more social media everywhere else of Israel bombing a building or where there are Palestinian casualties. They may be terrorists, they may not be terrorists, there may be reports that they're civilians. It doesn't make that much difference. That also brings out not just the verbal anti-Semitism, the accusations, the demonization, what we sometimes call the soft power uh, war against Israel, but brings out often violent attacks against synagogues, against uh, uh, Jewish targets. The two are, are connected. Uh, and that goes, there is a, uh, a process that goes on. It doesn't mean that Israel can not defend its citizens against terrorism from Gaza, rocket attacks because of fear of anti-Semitism, but certainly on campuses we see always arise. The question of whether the current government, government November 1st, Israel had elections, Netanyahu was uh, returned to office along with a coalition. Uh, very often the phrase is the most right-wing government in the history of Israel. It's a little bit difficult to judge that, but I, you can certainly understand why that is a, an easy label to put on. That makes it easier also, I think, to attack Israel when you have some of the actions and statements where uh, individual members of the government and the government as a whole basically say, we don't care. We don't care how we were perceived around the world. I think that's a serious problem. Uh, in order to fight anti-Semitism effectively, we obviously need a coalition, we need allies. It can't just be fought from within Israel. The Jewish communities, I've talked to many leaders in Jewish, or members of Jewish communities, colleagues, faculty members, others, who right after the formation of this government, when they saw some of the policies that were adopted, some of the individuals, they said, this is going to make it much harder for me to be able to fight against this phenomenon of of demonizing Israel. Uh, Can you talk to these people? Can you get them to understand these new members of the government? And that that is a serious issue, and I I don't want to at all belittle that that aspect. I think that within Israel, within the Israeli uh, political leadership, certainly Mr. Netanyahu understands the issue. He's had enough experience, but maybe not given enough emphasis, not and the, the people that are around him, some of the members of the cabinet, ministers and others, should be made much more aware of the issues. I will say that uh, the minister that is dealing with anti-Semitism now, uh, Mr. Shikley, does have a good background. He understands. He has he spent a lot of time understanding, including on campuses, and I think has a more sophisticated view about whether he can do anything to get his uh, colleagues around the cabinet table to understand that they also have to take into account the responses. That that's That's a different question. You've also highlighted 
how this really does affect um, Israel diaspora relations, which is uh, a, also a fascinating aspect. To that effect, what actions can be taken to minimize this problem? I'm always a believer in a lot more consultation and cooperation between different organizations and individuals. Uh, we tend to be, as uh, Jewish communities in Israel and around the world, everybody has their own little niche and do their own messaging. And, and that doesn't necessarily contribute to a common approach. And I think we need, we're, we're still a small minority in all of these areas. We, we need to also work more closely together to prioritize. What are the issues that we can deal with? What are the issues that no matter what we do, we're not going to be able to change anything? And maybe it's not that important. I think that the hostility towards Israel, which then goes off into anti-Semitism on university campuses, should be an extremely high priority. And I don't have to explain it to you. I think most of the listeners will understand why that's such an important aspect in terms of the future dealing with future leaders and so many other aspects of that. So we should be more focused on prioritization. And sometimes when there's an issue that can create more difficulties for Israel, certain laws that are being proposed, and I'm not talking about the overall judicial reform, but I'm talking about other aspects of Israeli politics, which appeal to Israeli, small Israeli sectors, but which are perceived and can be painted as being uh, anti-minority, anti-Arab, anti-women. There needs to be a lot more understanding of the implications. And that's not easy to do. There are sectors in Israel, there are constituencies who say we don't really care. And, and that's a problem. Uh, that, But I still think that it, it needs to be part of the educational process. So more interaction among ourselves, more prioritization. I think that the IRA definition is extremely important. I think there has to be greater understanding of the forces that are behind the attempts to weaken the IRA definition, in particular a group of, of left-wing German frameworks that have also quite a bit of money that are pushing something called the Jerusalem Declaration on Anti-Semitism, which all of the anti-Israel aspects are stripped away. That's an attempt to weaken the IRA definition. We need to be aware of where that's coming from and why that um, is having some impact on campuses and how to fight against that. So there, that that whole process, I think, is part of the, the answer. I couldn't agree more. And um, something that we I was discussing with Jana Naftalieva, the president of Wujis, is what can be done within campuses where we find students who can be discussing things that are, are unrelated to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. But for, for some reason, the, um, an, an Israeli connection comes up. For example, whether a, a professor or a researcher or a student has an Israeli background. What can be done to assist students, for example, um, to discuss this in a context where the power balance isn't equal? So, for example, when one would have a professor who has anti-Semitic traits. I think the, the point that you just made is extremely important, the unequal power balance. And for all the reasons we discussed earlier, the degree to which you have individual faculty members, professors, 
And I come back to, to law schools, in particular international law programs, sometimes international relations, those areas, but also it goes as to gender studies and ethnic studies and other areas. When you have faculty members who are abusing their positions, I think it is really unacceptable that students are left to deal with this on their own. I am very critical of many faculty, my fellow faculty members who will privately tell me that they agree that there should be more pushback, that this is disgraceful, that some of their colleagues are abusing their faculty positions, but they don't want to get involved. And they don't necessarily say it, but it may interfere with their promotion or it may interfere with their social lives. There was a, a whole series of events at the University of Toronto. And I really encourage people to take a look at an article that was written and published by a, a professor in the medical school at the University of Toronto. Um, Ayelet, I believe her last name is Cooper, um, who published the, the details when she spent a year a, a, in a position in which she was monitoring and received the complaints of students about anti-Semitism in that program and at the University of Toronto in general, and how reluctant the faculty members were to take a principled position. They take principled positions on all sorts of other issues. But when it comes to Israel and anti-Semitism, they're nowhere to be found. They're cowered into silence. And that's something that I think that in terms of the structure, the process, that needs to be addressed. Uh, I really think the faculty members need to be pushed to take positions as administrators also. And then the education of the students. And I think that I've seen a tremendous increase in the understanding of, of students who are involved on Israel issues in learning and being able to refute some of the, the most uh, basic biases and uh, false claims that are behind the, these campaigns. Uh, I certainly encourage people to some of the, the publications, including the World Jewish Congress, uh, but also the stuff that's done that's put out by a group like Stand With Us, uh, NGO Monitor, and the specific areas of dealing with the, the human rights campaigns to be able to refute the knowledge is power. And if you're able to refute, stand up and refute the claims, the false claims that are made, the historical claims that are made, uh, I think that that, that is a, also a, a way of redressing the imbalance of power. What is the responsibility of Jewish organizations with respect to the problem? I'm cautious about being directly involved. I go back to the campus issues. I think campuses tend to have their own environment. And if you're not a university, it's unfortunate in some ways, but if you're not a university person or organization and you attempt to interfere, you are scolded, you are rejected, you are condemned for violating academic freedom or something like that. I do think that organizations and the Royal Jewish Congress is, is particularly important in this, but other groups as well. And I think there are, all of these groups have a role to play, each one in its own area, where providing the information, providing outside support, fighting the fight on the diplomatic and political level is extremely important. So when I see the World Jewish Congress officials discussing these issues with European diplomats, European government um, uh, representatives, members of parliament, and the need for their, these, org these individuals and organizations and frameworks to take action against anti-Semitism, to promote the IRA definition, that's extremely important. So I'd say the organizations are doing a good job and the more they can do in this area, the better. Professor Steinberg, thank you for taking us through the details. You certainly helped us to understand the anti-Semitism phenomenon on campuses 
and I sincerely hope that it'll help us all in fighting this problem. Efrat, thank you very much for a very stimulating discussion. I would like to sincerely thank both of our guests for joining us. And I would like to thank you for tuning in and invite you to join us and subscribe to the WJC podcast. I'm Efrat Safel. Thank you so much. Jewish World, a podcast by the World Jewish Congress Israel. Jewish World is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and more. Subscribe for updates on new episodes.